so excited as we've just arrived at our destination in uber fashionable Dalston. In fact, in our local hood. <laughs> now, by we, I mean me and Mr. Binks. I should just clarify that Mr. Binks isn't my boyfriend, but he is my English toy terrier. And we're here to meet a leading crime fiction author called Laura Wilson. And today on A Dog's Life, we'll be chatting about dogs in literature, their role in fiction over hundreds of years. I'm Anna Webb, and this is A Dog's Life. Hey Laura, thanks so much for sparing the time to have a chat today. I must say it's a bit emotional seeing you again as the last time I saw you, Molly, my first miniature bull terrier, was alive. And indeed I was living around the corner. (laughs) Yes, it was a different time with, with different dogs. And in fact last time you saw me I had a husband and he's now no longer with us either. I know. So it's... Big all change. Big all change. It's kind of landmark, isn't it? Because people say to me, but Anna, that's life. Or death in this case, I suppose. Yes, that's true. Now, when we first met, well, a long time ago, I think I was only 37 at the time, and Molly was actually a young pup, and your first Basset Hound, Freeway, was, would he have been about six then? Can you remember? And we yes, met, some, something like that he would have been about, five or six, I think. And we met yeah. walking in Lincoln's Inn Fields, and I thought, gosh, I've got a really glamorous happening friend because uh, you certainly are probably still the first published really successful author that I know as a friend. It was very nice of you to say that I'm not sure about how successful but we keep going we keep writing and the dogs change but the books stay the same. Yes (laughs) and that's crime fiction isn't it primarily? Yes it is yeah. I know some of your books are really scary and one I think is my favourite really, um, the one that's called Hello Bunny Alice. As I think I'm right in saying, that's one that does have a dog in it. It does. In fact, it's got a basset hound in it. I wrote Hello Bunny Alice in, I think, 2003, after the breakup of a relationship. And Alice, like me, was living on her own, only Alice was in the middle of the countryside. And I felt that that Alice had rather gone off people who treated her badly and turned towards animals. And I thought she'd be lonely in a house in the countryside. So I effectively gave her my dog. Freeway, the Basset Hound, that's IRL, became Eustace, the fictional Basset Hound. And in a crime novel, dogs can be quite useful for several reasons. And in this case, Eustace was useful because Alice had to protect him. She had to have a reason to stay in her house when things went utterly pear-shaped. And she not only had Eustace, she had several other animals. So she stayed there really to look after them, whereas if she hadn't had those, she would have just fled into the night. Um, The other things, actually, that, that animals can do, and I've done this one as well, dogs can do, is find bodies. A real classic way of starting a mystery novel is you have a dog walker out early in the morning and... The dog digs up the skeleton, and there we are. But statistically, actually, if you're a dog walker or a jogger, 
Yes. Those are the two kinds of people most likely to find dead bodies. Yes, and um, I think... Just saying. No, that does happen. I mean, it's yeah. happened, uh, you know, it happens a lot, you know, mm. in, in real time. Early morning jogging, bad idea, bad. Yeah. I think early Don't do morning... That. No, jogging yeah. full stop, I think, is a, yeah. a bad idea. Any time of the day or exactly, night, Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, dogs in literature, which is what we're going to have a, a chat about in a bit more detail, you know, it's something that really is quite fascinating. Yeah, it... When I started thinking about this last night, it occurred to me that on a really basic level, we start right at the beginning. Do you remember Peter and Jane, the ladybird keywords? Yes. Those books. I know, this ages us, you know, and um, I think a lot of... Well, it does, although Peter and Jane are still with us, but obviously they've been updated. Oh, right. You know, to... to, Because... What do you mean? Are they on smartphones? No, not quite. They're a bit bit young for that, But, but... what it was, certainly, Peter and Jane started in the early 60s. Right. Which is kind of concurrent with me, I have to say. No, I know. Um, uh, yeah. I know. And um, in fine, those fine times. I mean, families obviously come in all shapes and sizes. Yes. And we, as a country, make much more allowance for that now. But back in those days, there was the normal family. And that was the breadwinning dad, stay at home mum, two kids, maybe three. And the dog. And the dog was part of that bourgeois normalcy. So Peter and Jane had a dog, which was called Pat. And the dog was just part of that family unit. And and this showed that this was a a really normal family. But they also, certainly in children's books, dogs feature as what you might call an only friend. You know, there's, there is this thing that we may, we may not be cool enough or attractive enough or good enough at football or we, whatever it is, wear cool clothes to be popular at school, but at least the dog's going to like us. And do you think that's why dogs are in literature? Are they there to represent good and, you know, as a foil to the humans in, in the, 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 the fiction piece that kind of might be bad? in simplistic terms. Partly, although dogs, of course, themselves can be bad. They can be evil with enormous fangs and sort of try and bite you and stuff. But I think, by and large, with literature, it's sort of like paintings um, that dogs very often represent fidelity and loyalty. And in paintings, obviously, it's a sporting painting. They can be hunting dogs, but they can also be companions. They're often shown on people's laps. Yes. and very often, certainly in children's literature, you do get this thing where the child is alone. Very often, children in literature who are the protagonists of stories are orphans. Parents very often are somewhere else. And if you think about The Wizard of Oz... Which I love. Yeah, Dorothy lives in Kansas, which is described very early in the book. It's the middle of nowhere. Yeah. It's this colourless plain with no features. And she's an orphan and she lives with Uncle Henry and Aunt Em, who are described as grey people. They work incredibly hard on this barren, windswept farm and all their energies are just trying to keep, you know, bread on the table. Um, And Dorothy can't play with them. She's young. She wants fun. She wants adventure. So she has Toto. And Toto really, he he isn't grey. There's a bit that says Toto made Dorothy laughed and he saves her from growing as grey as her other surroundings. 
He's a little black dog with long silky hair and small black eyes that twinkle merrily. On either side of his funny wee nose, he plays all day long and Dorothy plays with him and she loves him dearly. So in a way, he's a small black dog, but he's the colour in her life. There's an emotional connection there, which there isn't with anybody or anything else. Because Toto really stands out, not least for obviously being the only dog in The Wizard of Oz. Um, And would you say in sort of literary terms that he is the hero and Dorothy is the anti-hero? Not exactly. Toto is actually, in terms of just story, just technical, you know, making the book, he's actually the catalyst. He kicks the whole thing off. I mean, obviously there's a a hurricane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... What happens when there's a hurricane is that they have a storm cellar and Aunt Em and Uncle Henry say, quick, quick, come down to the storm cellar, the tornado is approaching. But Toto runs away and hides under the bed and Dorothy has to go and get him. And of course, there is then not enough time to get back down to the storm cellar before the tornado raises the entire house into the sky and it flies away and it lands in the land of Oz. So Toto actually he makes everything happen. Okay, so that was obviously um, a reason that Frank, it was Frank Bohm, yeah, yeah, that wrote the uh, original book, novel, way back in, what, was it in the 19s, 1900s? I think it's the, I think it was the early 1900s. Yeah. I couldn't, I looked up about Frank Bohm and I couldn't find any evidence of whether he had dogs or did or didn't okay. or much about him. But there was a whole series of Oz books. They just went on and on and on. I think eventually someone else took over writing them. And in about book eight, Toto reveals that he can actually talk, but just can't, doesn't want to. How funny. Sort of, well, I can talk because I learned to talk in Oz, but I can't really be asked. You know, which is fair enough, actually. Well, um, yes. I mean, you know, I think speech is, um, you know, uh, being... Uh, well, you could argue it's quite, really. it's quite overrated, it's given overrated. how much trouble human beings get themselves into, into because they Exactly. Talk. And, of course, now, you know, with social media, you know, we're not really using um, the power of speech that we've been blessed with as human beings. Um, and it really is the only thing that separates us from animals. So, in a way, maybe that was quite a, you know, a foresightful um, opinion of Toto. Yes, it could, it could be, and he clearly felt. I mean, and I haven't. I have to stress, I haven't, I haven't actually read this far into the Oz series that um, he just had an easier life. Yes, if he kept Sturm and just barked occasionally, and that that was that was fine. I mean, obviously, in in the story, Dorothy has to protect Toto, and in doing so, sometimes does things that are sort of counterintuitive. When when they first meet the cowardly lion. Toto rushes at him barking, the lion opens its mouth and Dorothy steps forward and whacks him on the nose, which is really not a very smart thing to do with a lion. (laughs) Of course, the lion promptly bursts into tears and says, look, I'm really sorry, I wasn't going to bite him. And and Toto is very suspicious of each of those characters. In fact, he bites the tin man and hurts his teeth. How funny, all this detail, um, you know, I mean, it's years since I read. um, And he also later on bites the witch. But of course, she's so wicked that all her blood has dried up. So that's kind of pointless. Something happens to Toto is that doesn't he get captured by the wicked uh, witch of the the, East? The the wicked witch's winged monkeys. Right, right. Because there are quite a few sort of 
animal hybrid things in this book. Toto is just a dog in, in the magical land. That That is all he is. And he, he, he reacts as a dog. No, it's a very, you know, an amazing um, book, really preceding Tolkien and Pullman after that, that really fuses the aragolical with reality. Well, um, yes, and, and Toto, like Dorothy, they, they don't change. Whereas when they, they go to Oz, you, and in the film this is brought out more, that the good witches aren't M and the... Uh, the travelling salesman, the sort of snake oil salesman, is, is the Wizard of Oz, who, of course, is, spoiler coming up, turns out to be a complete charlatan who's sort of operating levers behind a curtain. And then the farmhands from the farm in Kansas are the lion and the, the scarecrow and the tin man. But Dorothy and Toto remain exactly as they are, and a human child that, and a dog. Why is that in literary terms? You know? Well, you you have to have, obviously somebody has to have the adventure and you have to have um, something that you know anchors you we see through Dorothy's eyes and so they have to remain the same dog and and child and we the reader can relate to them whereas it's quite hard to relate to winged monkeys and you know yes particularly back then in the sort of 1900 I suppose there's always been quite a a bit of that around I mean another example of that is Alice in Wonderland Alice through the looking glass where she she goes first down a rabbit hole and through a mirror in the second book to a magical land. And some of the things from her real life, which we don't know very much about, we know a little, like there are cats, for example. In, well, the Cheshire cat's famous. Yeah, and in Alice Through the Looking Glass, she's playing with a black kitten and a white kitten at the beginning, and they become the black queen and the white queen, right. the chess pieces. It, as far as I can see about the Cheshire Cat, it's been suggested that actually it was based on a person rather than a cat. How funny. But there is also, going way back 1700 and way before it was written, the, the idea which is somehow conflated about things from Cheshire, a cheese and a cat... With a big smile, you yes. know, like yeah. sort of cheesy the grin. shape of a cheesy grin, <laughs> um, which apparently came from Cheshire. Why, I do not know. But in Alice in Wonderland, she meets, you know, a rabbit that's wearing a waistcoat and consulting a watch. She meets a caterpillar smoking a hookah and all these animals who are doing very un-animal things. Except when she shrinks down really tiny, she meets a puppy. And the puppy is a recognisably normal puppy. From Alice's point of view, because she shrunk, it's as big as a shy horse. But in all other ways, she plays a game with it, fetch with a stick. It behaves like a puppy. And it rolls over, goes to sleep, as puppy would, and off Alice goes. And people have speculated about why wasn't this sort of some kind of weird dog that sang songs or, I don't know, stood on one paw or did yeah, whatever else. Yeah. Well, what do you think? Why I is mean, it the only natural animal? I mean, my little idea on that is that the dog has been, you know, used in the plot to remind Alice of her real world and that the dog is firmly entrenched in that world as being stable and being loyal and being unconditional and to try and help her from this, you know, wonderland that she's accidentally fallen into it's possible it might be that just that it's it's reinforcing that she's very small but if that is the case small being vulnerable why isn't it a dog with big fangs that's trying to eat her the puppy is totally friendly well again so that doesn't quite work some people have said maybe it was because 
Lewis Carroll, who was really a mathematics don, called Charles Lutwidge Dodgson, I think. God, that's a mouthful. Something like that. Anyway, his real name wasn't Lewis Carroll. Um, But perhaps that he didn't like dogs. But the thing about him is that he did, I mean, a lot of photography, famously of little girls, which now seems to us slightly (laughs) iffy. Although I think probably seemed quite innocent to the Victorians. Um, Times have changed. But he did photograph quite a few of friends' dogs. How funny. And, you know, so but he I can't have that... not liked yeah. them. And you may, you may be right when you say that it was a reflection of normal life because we learn right at the end that the falling playing cards are actually falling leaves. And although no dog is mentioned, perhaps somewhere in there, in the subconscious, a dog came along and entered into the dream as itself. Who knows? Because Alice has cats rather than dogs. Right. We know this. Because she talks about her cat Dinah all the way through the first book, although Dinah doesn't seem to appear as anything magical and these kittens appear in the second book. But a dog isn't mentioned. That's not to say there couldn't be one. You see, that's fascinating. Of course, another book that I I was totally obsessed with as a child um, was Lassie Come Home. Um, I remember getting the hardback as a Christmas present. Um, I was very young and being so happy. Um, Now, that book, you know, made its author, Eric Knight, I'm sure quite wealthy, not least for selling the rights to the film that made Elizabeth Taylor and Roddy McDowell the stars they became. And I, I know Elizabeth Taylor, before she died, she made a statement to say that Lassie was probably her favourite co-star ever, certainly the most reliable. Yes, I can. I can. She was actually a dog person. She oh, crumbs, and Richard yes. Burton had two Pekingeses called, and it hurts me to say this. They were called Ophi and Ian So, and it's one of those things where you find out something about someone that you really admire, and you think, "Oh, did you have to?" I know. But apparently, they weren't house trained. Well, which was pretty tough on the staff. I'm sure it was. And when they came to visit England, um, they were clever to avoid quarantine because this oh, was, was years then, before yeah. years before the pet passport was invented. So they. They um, didn't actually enter the shores of England. They had a, a boat moored, um, you know, somewhere on the Thames, and their dogs stayed on there. Um, which... well, that must have been a bit tantalising, looking at the the Thames path and wishing you could have a walk. I know, I know. Well, but actually, how active are Pekingese dogs? Not very. No. They know. don't strike me as. No, but they're one mm. of the brachycephalic yeah. breeds, so you know they do have problems breathing. Oh, flat nose. Flat yeah. nose. So they have problems breathing and and mm. things, but they are very charming little happy happy things but yes you know Eric Knight's book that 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 covers what happens anecdotally very very often which is that dogs do have this extraordinary sense of direction yeah what I hadn't realized until I looked again at Lassie Come Home Mm. is that the title is actually Lassie Come Hyphen Home oh is it hyphen so Lassie Come Home Come home being one a description, a bit like if you say someone's Johnny No Mates, right? Yes. Only come a come home dog, come hyphen home dog, was, and that there is something at the beginning of the book about this that some people who sold dogs would train the dog to come back. Oh. So of course the person who bought it would pay the money. The dog would then find its way back to the original owner, who could sell it again. So it was actually a bit of a con. And that's, obviously, Lassie is the best dog in the whole district. It's in Yorkshire. And 
the family who originally owned her, the father is a collier, he works to pit, the pit's closed down, they've got no money, which is why the dog gets sold. And it's sold to a local aristocrat, this very unpleasant duke, who believes that it is a come-home dog, that the, the man has tricked him, ah. and the dog is coming home so that he can say, oh, well, yeah, sorry, you know, I don't know what's happened to your dog. But, of course, it's Lassie, who, when she finds herself in the Duke's kennels, Lassie. Oh. is desperate to find her way home to Joe, the boy, who she always meets after school. School at and four o'clock. And, um, and that's really marked in the book that whenever, you know, it got to four o'clock, she started to get restless and pace around. Mm. And she stopped off in various people's homes on the journey down through Yorkshire. Well, yes, because they, they take her further and further and further away and she ends up in Scotland. Yes. And still she finds her, her way, way back. Home. It's a very emotional film, actually. I'm feeling emotional just thinking about it. Um, but that's actually the sense. But it's also to do with the sense of direction, Laura. I know dogs may have been trained to become home yeah. dogs, which is interesting. But you know, you even read in the papers these days about dogs getting lost, you know, somewhere like you know, Wales and ending up coming home to London. Um, and that's uh, something that we actually talked with fellow author Rupert Sheldrake quite recently. Yeah, well, the, actually, Eric Knight, who I don't think is a terrifically good writer, but right, anyway, that's right. not here nor there, is very interesting because he, the way he describes this from Lassie's point of view, she's in the Duke's kennels, and she doesn't think like a person. He makes this really clear that it is an instinct. And the Duke's kennel man, I suppose you call it, is being berated by the duke because the duke's saying well, the dog should be eating why isn't the dog eating and the kennel man's saying you know don't worry I'll, I'll, I'll fix it I'll fix it and when he leaves the dog sort of just blinks at him she, she completely ignores him it's like a human blanking you and then it says when he was gone she lay unmoving in the sunshine until the shadows became longer then uneasily she rose she lifted her head to scent the breeze as if she had not read there what she desired, she whimpered lightly. She began patrolling the wire, going back and forth, back and forth. She was a dog. She could not think in terms of thoughts such as we may put in words. There was only in her mind and in her body a growing desire that was at first vague. But then the desire became plainer and plainer. Suddenly, Lassie knew what it was she wanted. Now she knew. It's interesting. He never actually makes her put it into words because she's a dog and she doesn't have words. She just knows. Yes. And we know she has to get back home. To meet yeah. Joe from school. And I was just rather critical about Eric Knight's writing, but actually he encapsulates it perfectly. Yes. Because she's not formulating sentences and overthinking it. It's, no. it's pure instinct. Yes. Yeah, and, and it's that knowing aspect. The yeah. word new, you know, is actually quite significant, really, in terms of dogs having this uh, almost extrasensory perception, yeah. um, call it instinct or, or whatever. But And that's quite in contrast, really, moving on to another firm favourite, of course, which is uh, the classic 101 Dalmatians, where the dogs do actually speak an awful lot. <laughs> they do. <laughs> Although... More to each other than to yes, you know. <laughs> yes. That 
that 101 Dalmatians is kind of the opposite of most children's books. Because you know I was saying earlier about how mostly in children's books, the child or children, they're orphans. Like with Famous Five, there aren't really any parents around. No, it's true. Uncle Quentin just goes, right, you lot bugger off and have an adventure. Was he near blind? No, incredibly dog irresponsible parent. <laughs> um, she was, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that, but she definitely was. But in 101 Dalmatians... It's not the children who have adventures, it's the parents. It's Pongo and Mrs. Pongo. Yes. The two Dalmatians who, they have Purdy, a family. Purdy, Pongo and Purdy. Or Mrs. Pongo in the book. Oh. And this that is where the cartoon this, and the yeah, and then gets the conflated. Glenn Close. Yes, it, the book's yes. a bit sexist because Mrs. Pongo actually doesn't have a name of her own. She's just referred to as Mrs. It's a bit right. off, really. But, you know. It is off. It was written in about 1956, so we'll excuse them. By a woman. By a woman, who was actually rather an unconventional woman. But again, she got the idea Did because... Did she have donations? She, well, Dodie Smith started life as an actress and apparently was catastrophically bad at acting. I did. So she went to work for Ambrose Heal at Heal, you know, Heal's Furniture Shop? Yes. All beautiful interiors and furniture. And she was a very, very stylish person. And her big thing, her trademark look, was black and white. Ah. Oh. So her then lover, who later became her husband, bought her a Dalmatian. She liked dogs. This wasn't just a, like a gimmick thing mm, she mm. loved the dog choose the right dog for your lifestyle yeah right good. dog for not only the decor but also the lifestyle um and a friend of hers just made a very casual remark wow that dog would make a great fur coat and that was i mean i'm sure the friend was it was just a flippant remark the friend was not cruella de vil <laughs> that was the germ for 101 dalmatians subtitle of which is the great dog robbery okay so it's Pongo and Mrs. Pongo. As I say, they're, they're the parents having the adventure because they are going to find their children who've been kidnapped by the evil Corella de Ville. And Pongo and Mrs. Pongo make use of this whole dog network. It's not instinct so much as really good contact because they meet right. other dogs and cat, in fact, as well, who help them along the way. And if there is a moral... I suppose you could say it was moral in 101 Dalmatians. It's all about how we can achieve things by teamwork. Absolutely. Um, because when they, when they get to Hell Hall, accurately named, where all these dogs are being held prisoner, and they overhear this conversation of Corelle Deville telling her henchmen, oh, we, we must quickly slaughter them and, and skin them. I mean, it's pretty revolting when you think about it. It's a children's book. Um, right, we've, we've got to go into action now. We've got to save the dogs. But their youngest dog, the one that's called the cat pig, he's really too weak to walk as fast as the others. So they find a cart, and the puppies take turns pulling the cart. Okay. And so there's that. There's all this, you know, and somebody else's, I think a Staffordshire Bull Terrier, in fact, says, on oh, my humans, this is my pets, is they've got the a sergeant? furniture van, we can all hide in the van. Now, the colonel is an old English sheepdog, That's right. and he provides other help. So this is all about how we can really achieve anything by... Cooperation, teamwork. Such a good message. Such a good message that, you know, arguably is lacking in today's world. Yeah, we could you know. do with a bit more of that. We could, we could, For we sure. could. And then there was the Starlight Barking, which um, I think was the sequel to 101 Dalmatians. Yes, the Starlight Barking is a very bizarre book. See, I love it, the Starlight Barking. It kind barking. of ends up 
almost like sci-fi yeah with serious this is dogs against nuclear war i, I mean know. It is, it's deeply strange it did go <laughs> off on one yeah to put in a phrase. i'm not quite sure what happened there um it, it, it yes distinctly peculiar which i think is the reason why 101 dalmatians has been filmed you four or five times well, the Disney um, cartoon animation is obviously... Yeah, Disney kind of jibbed at Starlight Barking, I think, because yes. it's just too weird yes. for anybody, yes. really. Oh, gosh. What would be your favourite doggy character, then, in literature, Laura? Ever. Ever. Okay. I'm not sure if this counts, but I have a very soft spot for Tok. Tok is a watchdog, quite literally. He's a cross between a large dog, possibly a mastiff, and an alarm clock. He can wind himself up with his one back foot. That is He's so really great. Cool. And he appears in a book by a guy called Norton Juster called... Actually, I'm saying a guy. I don't know. I think it's a man. Not sure. Sorry if I've um, misgendered you. And it's called The Phantom Tollbooth. And again, it's about a, a rather bored little boy called Milo who is given a present of a, a, a pedal car and finds himself a bit in the way that Alice does in another world and is tasked with going off on an adventure to rescue some princesses from a high castle. And Tok, whose his mission in life is to stop people wasting time, and Milo's a time waster, so he's always barking, and whenever he barks, his alarm bell rings like mad. And he wakes <laughs> everybody up and says, get to work, stop messing around. And he guides Milo through the adventure, and in the end... He's sort of metaphorical, because in the end, time flies, because everybody gets on Tog's back, and, and they fly away from the castle. Oh, I um, love it. So he's, he's, he's a, an alarm clock, and a dog, and a metaphor, and he has special powers. And the illustrations for that book, I think, Jules Pfeiffer, I think, are so lovely. I've never forgotten the picture, and I think Tog has... He has the number one place in my heart. I so love that. But I think in, in just these examples today, you know, it's quite clear, isn't it, that dogs have always been represented as man's best friend. And this has been going on for hundreds of years, even, of course, Dickens, which we might have to save now for another day, Laura, and talk about some of... Uh, yes, Dickens, dogs and Dickens, very interesting. Well, yeah. let's save that for another one. Would you like to come back um, on to, to A Dog's I Life? gas about dogs and books forever. It's my two favourite topics. Brilliant. Well, Laura, what's your latest novel out, by the way? My, well, my latest novel actually does have a dog in it. It's, it was one I did a few years ago. It's called The Other Woman, and it's a sort of a dark farce. It's about a woman who accidentally kills somebody she believes to be her husband's mistress panics because the kids are coming home from school in half an hour and stuffs the woman in the family's chest freezer. Right. But because she's a very rich woman and she's got lots of staff and stuff, she can never thereafter get her out. And one of the things she has, because in, if you're doing a fast, you need random elements. So she has a teenage son, definitely a random element, and a black Labrador. Because a dog, that's another thing it can do in a story, is cause chaos. Of course. <laughs> Very useful indeed. How interesting. And black dogs are associated with death and all things kind of, you know, medieval and mental health. So yes, I hadn't, I hadn't actually thought of his... He's called Dexter. I hadn't actually thought of his sort of metaphorical attributes at the time. Just that he's the kind of Labrador that behaves like a tanked-up public schoolboy. And he's very <laughs> rumbustious, basically. Of course. Constantly causing mischief. 
Oh, well, let's all look out for that. Well, thank you again, Laura. This has been fantastic. Thank you for having me. So that's our show, Mr. Binks. What did you think of it? Yes, Laura was brilliant and so intellectual. And what she said about Toto, well, I've always loved Toto more than Dorothy. And thank you for listening, and I hope you found it fun and enlightening. If you did, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite shows. And while you're there, go on, give us a five-star review. It really will help other dog owners find us. Thanks to Mike Hansen and Cookie and Sophie Bradley. And of course, to you, Mr. Binks, for being, well, just you. What's that? Oh yes, we'll be back with another episode of A Dog's Life very soon. Subscribe now so you never miss a show. Bye for now. Okay.